to And The Winner Isn't, a podcast for the movie aisle in which we take a look back at a film that didn't win the Oscar in the category in which it was nominated. And we try to decide whether our choice would have been a more worthy winner. So my name is Marie and with me is my co-host Dan. Dan, hi. Hello, Marie. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you? Well, considering the circumstances that we currently live in mm -hmm. and under, I'm doing quite well, thanks. That's good. Glad to hear it. I'm going to dispense with too much uh, formality and just let you, I'm going to hand straight over to you because this Thank is you. your choice and I can see that you are just dying to get stuck into this. So uh, let's not wait. Yes, because it's not going to take me long to convince you and our listenership that I am 110% correct in my selection when we go back to the wonderful year 1981. And the winner was Chariots of Fire. <laughs> no. Up against Reds on Golden Pond, Atlantic City, and the winner, as it should have been, the Academy got this completely wrong, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank you very much. Game over. Shall we just leave now? For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, if it is there, Atanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. If you still want the Ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. couldn't just say that I'm right and everybody would say he's right there's nothing to be heard here but yeah, I'm sure I that think, uh, some would be disappointed in the I brevity of that. I think a lot of our listeners will definitely agree with you but I have to say I might don't, not completely don't, don't, agree don't with you. Don't go there Marie. <laughs> remember, don't go the, there. remember what we're looking for is whether we thought it should have won the Oscar not whether it was an entertaining film or not. I'm going to preface Anything I say with that statement. Entertaining, yes. Should have won. Sometimes. Absolutely, yes. 
Okay. And from this list, from this list, mm -hmm. definitely the film that stands out alone for all time's sake. It certainly stands out for a number of reasons, which we will definitely get to. <laughs> Dan's almost rubbing his hands in glee. It's unbelievable. If you could see this, it's, it's great. <laughs> we should have done a video version of this one. <laughs> so if, if anybody hasn't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I have to say, I hadn't, I thought I had seen it. And I, when I got to the end, I realised I had never got to the end of it. I know... <laughs> Dan's eyes are as wide as saucers now. Uh, I hadn't no. ever seen it all the way through before because um, I remembered bits of it. So anyway, IMDb tells us in 1936, archaeologist and adventurer, that's a good combination, uh, Indiana Jones is hired by the US government to find the Ark of the Covenant before Adolf Hitler's Nazis can obtain its awesome powers. And actually, before we go any further, <laughs> what's amused me about reading that is that Adolf Hitler's name is a hyperlink, and so Adolf Hitler has his own IMDb page, which... <laughs> Wonders never cease. I'm not sure how, how much I feel about that. I'm not sure Steven Spielberg would be too happy, but... Uh, yes. Mel Brooks might find that funny. Yeah, well, <laughs> indeed. So archaeologist and adventurer, which isn't quite, I mean, he is an archaeologist, but it leaves out the academic side of it. It doesn't lean on that, which I think is the other side of his persona. But anyway, we'll talk about our hero in a moment. So, right. So this is 1981. You've mentioned the film nominees. Yes, well, uh, first, some more of the specifics. PG rating, yeah. one hour, 55 minutes. An action-adventure action film, if you're looking in the correct aisle, and released on the 12th of June, 1981. Directed by the great uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh -huh. Screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan uh, and his uh, colleague Philip Kaufman with the story by George Lucas. Stars Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, and Paul Freeman. Cinematographer Douglas Slocum, nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won four, and it won a host of other awards by other groups who were much more in line with the thinking and the way that it should have turned out, but maybe more about that later. <laughs> so I'm looking at this list, and one of the awards it won was Best Visual Effects. Um, yes. But there was only one other nominee in that category. So that wasn't much of a competition. Don't slide it short. Those <laughs> special effects were brilliant. I tell you, my sons love the face melting in the climactic scene with the Ark of the, the Covenant. Face uh, melting. There are some quite yes. horrible looking things going it, on. It there was. Too. At yeah. first they were scared, but now yeah. we have to pause and rewind and watch it over and over and over and over and over <laughs> and over again until the lightning bolts get all the bad Nazis and then they cheer little to no competition because it wouldn't have mattered anyway. They were going to win regardless of how many had stacked up against it. <laughs> oh, Don't forgetting best sound and best art direction, set direction. Probably okay. also should have won, were nominated, but didn't win for best original score because I bet if you asked 100 movie-going fans to hum the theme song to the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark, they could do it without batting an eye. Mm. I, I agree that I think the theme song is one that you know you absolutely definitely know 
Okay, do, I'm gonna put that on the board that you agree with me. There's you one. can you can have that because there won't be many. There were times in it where I thought it felt a little bit. I could hear bits of Star Wars in there. I could hear bits of Superman in there, and I was thinking, I, I wonder if John Williams just rummaged around in the bottom of the drawer. So he, he had this great theme tune, and then needed a little bit to fill in, and did a bit of rummaging around, and had a. Uh. a so it was a bit. Apart from the march, the march is great, yes. Other than that, I felt it was a bit derivative. But I think this is one of the issues when you have... It's the same with Hans Zimmer nowadays. You quite often get a lot that starts to sound the same. But hmm. remember, I didn't see this when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. Like your, your children are watching it now and having that response to it. And if you watch something like that when you're so young, and like I presume you, you saw it when you were a youngster, it's just with you forever. Um, and I can see that nostalgia for all aspects of it. Yeah, it started to grade. The music started but to grow. Marie, when you yeah. measure it up to the nominees in this category, you didn't have to be eight or nine years old to, to appreciate this. This was the best film of that year. It might have taken the most money in that year, but that doesn't make it the best film of the year. <sighs> money, money, money. <laughs> well, there you go, you see. <laughs> Let's talk about longevity, perseverance. This yes. film is on all the time. Why? Because it's that good. Well, just because it's on all the time doesn't mean it's that good. It just means it's on all the time. <laughs> you have much to learn, my friend. <laughs> That's the different franchise. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I'm going to tell you that uh, the globetrotting aspect of this character, the locations in which Spielberg takes us to and through in some cases, is brilliant. And it just adds to the brilliance of this film. We go to South America where the film starts. We go to uh, the mountains of Nepal. Um, we go to the island in the Mediterranean where the Nazis were hanging out. <laughs> just a wonderful globetrotting film. Unnecessarily. For a kind of guy. You go to all of those locations unnecessarily. And that is... One, I think this is a real mess of a film, and that's one of the reasons why most of what happens is irrelevant. Oh, how dare you! It's irrelevant. Let's piece to this adventure together. They're searching for the Ark of the Covenant, the actual chamber of the Ten Commandments, as the story goes. Yeah, and, and, and it's buried in the desert. So Along with all just, of its power and majesty. So he should just go straight to the desert. Well, he can't just go to the desert because he has to find the pieces of the puzzle to get him there. But most of the time, see, I have this piece of paper in front of me. And you were so excited when I told you I'd watched this film twice. I was. The second time, I counted all of the action scenes. I counted 11 separate action scenes. Most of them are too long. but. The most important thing is at least half of them are completely irrelevant because after he's killed lots of people, he turns out, oh, she wasn't in the basket all along. Or, oh, the, the ark isn't on the plane after all that, if, after the plane got... Or he gets it and somebody takes it from him straight away. There, he has no agency and there is no reason for 50% of what happens in this film. <sighs> Shaking your I see head that this is going to take a lot more convincing uh, than I originally had planned or thought. <laughs> if you start from the premise that you're not going to win me over on this one, because... Okay, he's an adventurer. 
He's an academic. He's a professor. He's, yeah. He, he starts, yes, but he's a professor in a field that you have to be in the field. Archaeology, you have to go looking for stuff. So he starts and establishes on a quest in South America, which, by the way, there was a nice little brilliant opening there with the Paramount uh, Mountains, which I'm no. sure you think was tacky, but brilliant nonetheless. No, I and like here that. he is, and it establishes not only his knowledge of cultures unfamiliar to most of the developed Western world, those natives that, uh, that we encounter, the tour guides that uh, lead him into this first um, cave where he finds the golden head statue, uh, only to be taken away by a chief rival from my friends in the industry. It's not so much um, as cutthroat competitive as it once was. So think back to the days of Carter uh, finding the old Rosetta Stone in, in Egypt, uh, for example, and how there were rivals who were trying to become rich, famous, notorious. And, and so the competition is created there. He goes back to the classroom with his chief friend and sponsor, Marcus Brody. And then he has to be approached because of his reputation by the government of the United States who says, you know, there's an evil plan afoot being financed by the Nazis. And so, you know, this becomes that catalyst for this great adventure. This is the piece in the archaeology world that nobody has found. So I, I, I beg to differ on your points of we don't have to do any of these places. And so he's teaching these government guys about how they would have found the Ark of the Covenant and they have to have the headpiece stone. And who does he know that would be able or in possession of that headpiece stone? None other than a former colleague whose daughter he happened to date way back when. And so we're introduced to her. And where does he have to go to find her? Nepal. Why? Because that's where she's hanging out in a bar. We'll with talk. a brilliant drinking competition, which I would have thought you would have loved. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about her in a moment, if we may. Honestly, I have a real problem with why he needs to get the golden head to start with. If that's a cultural artifact, it needs to stay in its cultural home. It shouldn't be robbed and taken back to, in his case, his university in the state. It, he's robbing those indigenous people of their culture. Which but you're now thinking of that in 21st century concept mindset. That was not that was not the way of thinking in the 1930s in which this movie set. But it, it wasn't. was made in 1981, and there was no acknowledgement yes, of that. The as an story issue. is set in the 30s <laughs> because hopefully the Nazis. Well, we know they're not not completely all gone, but. In 1981, they were a thing of the past. So the movie's set in 30s. You're taking this out of context. But he's missing. The mindset he is that this is a treasure quest, and and there is great financial reward in that. My point is that he is misappropriating. He is doing what the Nazis are doing. He's misappropriating. That's my point. His concept, though, is that they should always be in a museum that these pieces should be in a museum. That's his thing. He is an archeologist with a heart and a soul. He says this more than once, that that belongs in a museum. That's okay. where others can enjoy, experience, and view this culture so that it's not in private hands. It's not in some private collection that is off limits to the public. I'm gonna put that <laughs> on the board. No, that wasn't, that, 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 no. <laughs> 
okay fine let's all right let's move okay. on let's move on so so we we have another one of the multitude of colorful cast of characters that are going to come along for this adventure and this ride yeah and she you know she utters that wonderful phrase at the end when her bar burns down in large part because of a wonderful fight sequence action sequence which i'm guessing you thought was unnecessary but it was very much moving the story forward she says, I'm your GD partner. And so she's going to be, uh, whether you like it or not, another sidekick in this adventure. No, I, I'm highly pleased that they deigned to include a woman as a sidekick. What they have done with that character, though, is quite horrible, really. How old is she? I don't know that they necessarily say, but I would guess that she's probably in her late 30s, early 40s. Are based you serious? On, based on him. Huh. Okay, so you think not? I definitely think not. There's a point in where she she's obviously really mad at him because of something that happened ten years ago. And I thought she's if she's twenty eight, fine. Twenty eight, I would give the absolute most, which would mean she was eighteen at the time. And then I was thinking, I don't know about this. I don't think she's supposed to be that old. And I went and found this absolutely horrible transcript of a conversation. Do you know about this? Uh -oh. I know, it's absolutely terrible. Between George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. And the conversation is around, around this character and how they build it. And they actually are having a conversation saying, oh, he could have known her when she was just a kid. I'm quoting now. He had, he had an affair with her when she was 11. He hasn't seen her in 12 years. Now she's 22. It's a real strange relationship. And things like, he's 35. He knew her 10 years ago when he was 25 and she was only 12. It would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time and promiscuous. And they have this conversation about how she was. It says, here's this. Once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore. Why would they be even having a conversation about having a female character who is so abused by, by Indiana Jones that she would then decide to be his partner when the first thing she did when she saw him was punch him in the face. What was the context of that conversation? Where that did you find that? conversation is... Uh, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that that's completely disturbing. And, and I hadn't thought of it in that, in that regard. I know that they, Indiana Jones and her father had been colleagues. And yes. then that's how she met. But, it, you know, I, I was under the assumption that it was more of a teenage kind of crush crush yeah and if yeah, they so, had played it at that at that that, that yeah. would have been absolutely fine um i'll put a link to it in our show notes what i am fascinated by is that you you read her as much older and i didn't straight away and i didn't know about that conversation i only came across it oh, three, two three days later when i was thinking i just you know i was just idly looking for things a bit of background and came across it and thought do you know what? That's what was irking me, that she seems quite young, really, for, for all of this. No wonder she's in the Himalayas drinking herself under the table, if that's what happened to her when she was younger. But anyway. No, actually, she, she, followed, she followed another one of um, his rivals in the business there, and he was killed. She alludes to that in the dialogue. Oh, okay. That, that's right. why she's there. They're, they're, they're looking for something, and, and he's killed by locals. She's, she's not going to escape... Uh, whatever um, inappropriateness of the Indiana Jones previous relationship had been with her, she has gone with another guy in the industry, uh, in, in the profession there, and he's killed. Brilliant. So you'll have to so, go back and see it a third time. To, yeah, I will. So she has this, well, maybe not. She has this kind of, she's like, um, 
it's like Rick's bar, isn't it? Because he turns up and he's like, she's like, of all the bars in all the world, you have to walk into mine. Just as well he did, because he manages to save her from, from yes. the Nazis. Although yes. they wouldn't have been there, because they're following him, aren't they? So they wouldn't have been there uh, if it wasn't for Probably him. correct there as well. But yeah, then yeah. we don't have the same story. I, 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 think, that, uh, I think that you're, you're looking at that from a more realistic as opposed to a, a, a movie perspective. Can I also bring up the subject of her wardrobe? And again, this is something you may not have noticed. But twice in this, not once, twice in this film, a man she's never met before has a beautiful white dress in exactly her size just waiting for her to put it on. <laughs> How does that even happen? Why is it even a white? I mean, a white looks good in the desert, but how does he of course, know her size? Because it's, it's hot in the desert. Maybe this is his thing. I think you're, I think again, you're being nitpicky in the details of your argument for the distaste for my choice. Um, maybe this is his shtick. Maybe he's quite familiar with her in the fact that there are a couple of scenes where there are people following Indiana Jones and you see them from their point of views. All right, so let's, let's think that this is pre-World War II, which it is. You, you certainly had some countries more advanced in espionage than others. Uh, the OSS comes to mind rather quickly. Um, the Nazis had files on everybody and some of those very extensive. So it's quite possible and probable that she would have been in his file. Now, to your point of, would this guy have had a dress for that particular occasion? Yeah, maybe that's a slight stretch. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a half a credit point on that one. But I mean, you know, it adds to, I think, what maybe, and this is just me stretching it here maybe a bit, but um, I, know, I know personally, uh, in my own life, a couple of archaeologists. Uh, one's a rather handsome dude. One, I'd say, probably long past his better years. So uh, in their mind, in their competitive, egotistical way of thinking, these characters, I think, probably see themselves as God's gift to the earth and to <laughs> all women. So it's not a far stretch, I don't believe. Plus, there's a nice little scene in there when you allude to that dress when, uh, when Helmuth the Bad... Uh, Nazi dressed in all black leather comes in and he pulls out his little nunchucks and it turns out that it's a coat hanger for his stooges to hang his overcoat on <laughs> and, and they both breathe the sigh of relief. Um, I, I think uh, that just added to kind of the, as you allude to this, maybe the buffoonery of having a nightgown, uh, <laughs> a night dress, an evening wear dress uh, for dinner. <laughs> in a well, tent in the middle of the Sahara Desert next looking for the Ark of the Covenant. I know. Next time you meet your archaeologist friends, just ask them what size is the dress that they keep in their <laughs> suitcase in case they meet a lady along the way. Well, you know, they're both married now, so I bet they plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, I know what you mean. I would not, I have mentioned her, those two white dresses because the other one was on board a ship the captain of the ship just gives her this beautiful bias cut white silk gown. Just give her some Navy fatigues for goodness sake. She's on a ship anyway, but it was it, because it jumped out at me, not because I'm nitpicked, I've nitpicked in the past, but on those two occasions, I just thought, where would 
It wasn't smugglers. even like there were any other women. Smugglers. Okay. Well, smugglers honestly, you have an answer. On this that. ship. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I, I didn't get distracted by those details. And forgive me, probably because I'm a man, I didn't necessarily have a problem with those particular details. Yes, did they objectify her as a female character? Absolutely. Do I have a problem with that? Yes. You know, I try to put it in the context of it's a 1930s picture. And let's face it, the role of women in film has often been that, yeah. you know. Um, but I don't think up against the list of uh, other films on this particular year, that's a criticism that I think detracts from the picture itself. Mm. And I mean, she is quite badass. How, she, I think she kills more people than he does. Well, I think you're right, particularly in the, in the scene where the, the Ark has been recovered and getting ready to be transported. And uh, she has a field day at that, that desert airfield. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. When she takes control of the machine gun. But, you know, again, then to that point, she's a badass bra. She is, yeah. You know, I mean, besides being uh, easy on the eyes, uh, and witty and intelligent, she can hang with him. I, and I think that's what makes her a wonderful character. She's not taking any crap from anybody, including him. Yeah, that, that's true. And he, I mean, he leaves her tied up at one point when he could have untied her and rescued her. And he chooses yes, not to. Yes, yes, but. Yes, but. <laughs> well, he does it because if she's gone, then they know he's near. And they think at this point in the film, he's dead and gone. So, you know, it does, I, I don't think that's a loophole in the story either. Um, well, would it have been, it would have benefited him that as kick-ass as she is to have had her alongside and doing what it was from the get-go? Probably, probably. And if this was reality, if they made it out alive, I'm sure in the end, they definitely go their separate ways because she's keeping score of the times that he's let her down and that could be added to it. Mm. But, but again, she, this manages, isn't reality. This is the movies. No, she manages to overlook that anyway, doesn't she, by the end of it? I mean, I think there is a bit of a Lois and Clark vibe with the two of them. I think, I don't, I don't know if that's just me. And when I say Lois and Clark, I'm thinking of the 1978 Superman, that kind of... So he has the, you know, he has the glasses and there isn't the same difference between Clark Kent and Superman, but he definitely has the glasses and the mild-mannered you know, bit about him when he's doing his professor thing. And then suddenly he's the action hero. And then she is very much in, in that kind of Lois Lane thing where she's getting on with her own stuff and she's not taking any, any crap from anybody. Um, but she's a bit kooky as well at times and, you know, then needs rescuing from, from the plane which is going around in circles or from a basket because she's got herself in it or what have you. So I thought there was a little bit of a... Of a bit of kookiness going on there. I'm struggling to see why, apart from he looks great, why he's such a good character. Why is he such a good character, Dan? Tell me why he's... Well, he's got a number of one-liners that, uh, that appeal to those who like the wittiness. Um, he is athletic. He is an intellectual. Um, he has a sense of adventure. Um, to some degree, he's very childlike in his approach to things. Um, you know, there's, there's one scene there in the desert where um, he's talking to his friend and uh, Marion's there and he says, 
what are we going to do now? He says, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> you know, I mean, how much more real can that, uh, can that be? Um, <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned this, the fact that he's good looking, you know, Harrison Ford wasn't the original choice for this particular role. And, and I'm wondering what kind of film would it have been had the first choice of the director gotten the role. And that was Tom Selleck, who at the time was doing a little television show called Magnum PI. Um, <sighs> And and ran into some scheduling conflict, and so they didn't. And he didn't. He didn't accept the role. Wow. Um, he he wasn't the only one. There were some other names that were tossed about, but they were a little bit uh, older. Um, but Tom Selk Tom Selk was offered the role first. I think he would have done a good job, but it would have been a different. A different yes, film. absolutely. Yeah, I can, yeah. Can, Tom Selk is a wonderful him. actor in his own right, but yeah, yeah, it would have been a totally different film. And I can see him in in the outfit and and. But yeah, that would have been very different. I had, I had forgotten because when Star Wars came out, and I'm old, so when Star Wars, when <laughs> no, Star not. Wars, well, I'm older than you, and I'm old enough to have seen Star Wars at the cinema when it first came out. And yeah, I was too. Yeah. The first film I ever saw, I was four. Oh. But, you know. <laughs> well, and at the time, um, as with like all my friends, we were madly in love with Mark Hamill. And Harrison Ford was too old for us because that's, you know. And then I had forgotten that I think I would say this film is the best that Harrison Ford, for me, people will say differently. But I had forgotten just how handsome he was in this film. And the outfit suits him really well. He wears that hat and brandishes the whip very well indeed. And I can see how that as a character would certainly be a selling point you know you would want to be him or you would want to be with him or what have you well yeah. speaking of the whip you know speaking of the whip there was supposed to be a very elaborate fight scene uh when you alluded to earlier marion getting uh, stuffed in the basket and mm. carted off mm. uh, there's a sword uh wielding uh local in the bazaar in which this action sequence is taking place and the way that the script is written is that he's going to battle this guy with this bullwhip one of his, you know, prop pieces that he carries with him on his mm -hmm. adventures, because I guess you never know how far away you got to keep somebody, not just at arm's length, but at whip's length. And um, he and several others on the crew suffered from food poisoning the day that that oh. scene was filmed. Yeah. And um, he told Steven Spielberg at the time, according to these uh, stories that have come out by both of these men uh, since, that he was so sick uh, Spielberg apparently said to him, just give me what you can and then we'll, and we'll edit it. And he got there and they rolled the camera and he just shoots him. <laughs> and, it's, and it's classic. It's a classic scene in this movie. It is. And, um, and how different would that have been if we had seen him wielding the whip uh, a little bit more uh, so than we see him in other parts where he uses it briefly to assist him in whatever he's, he's gotten himself into at that particular moment. Yeah. That could have been a pretty fascinating scene, but instead it turns out to be a classic <laughs> moment in cinema. It is. It's the one that people know, even if they've not, not seen it or have not as watched it as religiously as you. What is your favourite action scene? Because, as I mentioned before, there are lots of them. I think some of them go on too long, but... Do you in this particular a, movie? In do, this yeah, movie? do you have a favourite? I do. The opening sequence is my favorite. Is uh, it? When, oh. when, when they're when they're in the South American um, cave, 
uh, and he's going after the artifact of the golden head. I just thought it was clever. I thought it was um, culturally correct in terms of the way that the thing is booby trapped. Mm -hmm. And then, and then as, as he takes this and has a moment of celebration, you know, and it quickly turns into another whole adventure when he has to get out of there alive and backtrack his way through. I, that that's my favorite. That's my favorite in this particular movie. I think I I really appreciated the um, the truck chase scene. Mm. I think it needed to be a little bit shorter, but I do think that what they did with that scene was particularly good. And I mean, I, that is the one where I think he t- he takes out more people than in any other uh, scene. But I think that's really well done. He does, but uh, to your point earlier about the killings, I don't think they all died. <laughs> I think they just kind of, you know, <laughs> fell off the side of the road and uh, were, were left for injured and incapacitated. This is a PG film after all, so you have to limit the body count. You do. I, th- I thought there were, there were some good scenes there, but I just, no, just got a little bit old. You just weren't along for the ride. Uh-huh. It, well, yeah, and I did twice. So, you know, you can credit me with that. So I didn't just throw it away after the first time. I give you much credit for that. I'm kind of <laughs> curious why you went back and watched it so quickly. Were there too many things that you missed or were there things that you wanted to hear a second time to make sure you got them correct? I got to the end and I remember thinking I must have missed bits of the plot because they kept, I kept hearing things like, oh, it wasn't there, or it didn't get on the plane, or, oh, so now I need to do this. And I'm thinking, I was doubting myself. I was thinking, I've missed bits of the plot because there was so much action going on. I've missed the bit where they explained what happened to to the arc between here and here. And the only little bit I missed was how they discovered that the Germans were digging in the wrong place. I think my attention lap, lapsed temporarily. Oh, Oh, go ahead. So I went back to watch it to see which bit I'd missed. And then I remember, then I realized what had happened. And in doing so, then realized that I hadn't missed anything else. It was a case of they went on this massive chase around the town for her, but then the bas- she was in a different basket. Or they spent 20 minutes on an airfield driving around in circles. And then the plane blew up. And then it wasn't even on the plane after all, so they didn't need to have bothered. It was actually that that made me go back and watch it again because I was was doubting myself. And then I realized it's just a bit of a mess. No, you know, I disagree. I think that's the beauty and the details of this. You know, Helmut, the the German Nazi spy that's dressed in all black appropriately, uh, he has got his hand on the medallion in the bar in the Himalayas that was heated in part because the bar's on fire and they're fighting around this fire and and he has burned the image in there, he doesn't have the medallion. So when they translate what's in the burned flesh in his palm from that imprint of the medallion, they only read the one side. But if you recall, <laughs> when he's in uh, Cairo with his friend, he is, um, uh, they go to that little mystic, yeah. little mystic, and uh, he says, look, it says this, but you have to turn, it, turn over it over and, yeah. and take this off. So Again, that's the beauty and the details, which is why they're digging in the wrong place. Yeah, and I so, figured that out on the second yeah. viewing. Um, that's yeah. what made me go back though, that particular. Now, now, is the airfield scene a little bit uh, drawn out? I mean, would there not have been more attention? Possibly, probably if this was re- reality, uh, yes. But here again, that little airfield was away from the dig site. 
So to divert the attention to bring that over there, it's plausible, it's realistic. Because after all, remember, they think they've left him in, in, in the well of souls and that he's dead. They don't realize that he has escaped and here we go for the next round. For a secret, totally believable. Through a, totally through a believable. secret passageway that was there all the time and he just managed to find it. Well, you have to remember that little <laughs> monogram and the construction in the days of old, very plausible, very plausible, not unrealistic. Of course, you know, my fear of snakes, uh, just like his, didn't play so well in that particular scene. I, I remember as a kid being squeamish and still watching it over and over today. That scene still is unnerving to me because ugh, that would be hell. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Yeah, I don't know how you watch that repeatedly, but if you hate snakes so much. I well, don't mind they, it, so our it viewers can't see, but this is how I watch it. Yeah, that's how I watched the bit at the beginning, because for me, it's uh, no legs is better than eight legs. So as soon as those, I can't even say the word, they were just horrible. So mm -hmm. I, I can't watch the eight-legged things. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the spiders, of course, tarantulas are probably yeah. the least worrisome spiders in all of the spider kingdom but yes you to spiders like me to snakes mm, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll concede that point my favorite can i share with you my favorite little bit of, of um, trivia that i discovered about by that? all means was the 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 guy who's playing your nazi dressed in all black First of all, this German was terrible. I don't know why they couldn't have cast a German actor. Um, but one of the reasons they couldn't ca cast a German actor was that they offered it to Klaus Kinski, which, but <laughs> right. he, he turned it down. He, he hated the script and he called it moronically shitty. <laughs> and so I kind of, I, th I mean, Klaus Kinski is a character, um, to put it mildly. But um, I love the fact that he turned it down because the script was moronic. That, that makes me laugh. <laughs> so there are two people wrong in this particular story we're sharing. There are. Can we talk about the ending? Well, not the very, very ending, but the, the massive um, dement, the scene with all the dementors in it. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> because, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> um, because this is, they, the bit, this is the bit where our hero has been through so many irrelevant action scenes and then he gets to the end and it all sorts itself out while he is tied to a post and closes his eyes. That, that's not an action hero. He's not actioning, he's tied to a post and he closes his eyes. Close your eyes, Marion, don't look at it while the Dementors fly around and kill the Nazis. Tell me how that is a great ending to an action film where our hero has his eyes closed. I'm all ears. <laughs> the power and mystique of the Ark of the Covenant is beyond the comprehension of mere mortals. <laughs> trying so hard not to laugh. And at he least. realizes, he realizes that those who are actively participating in this bizarre ritual of power are guilty by association if they're not, I mean, if they're fully engaged in it. So therefore they're not looking so that they can be separated out and seen as what they truly were, prisoners of the bad guys at that moment in time. And those mystical beings that you alluded to uh, recognize this fact and in fact untie them from the pole as all of the Nazis uh, and their, 
a band of uh, bad guys are consumed into heaven, down into the ark, and then uh, put away with. How'd Wait you like that? The Dementors untie them, is that right? Is that, how they come, is that how they get free? That's the story that I'm sticking to. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I genuinely didn't know how they got free. I just knew that they opened their eyes and it was all gone. So, See, they're flying around. They realize good and evil. They take care of the evil and they free the good. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. I appreciate it. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Any others? No. I mean, there are stupid things like when the the FBI comes to to ask him to go on this mission, they go on the stage in in the university hall. I don't know why. They I believe that was his lecture hall, but it was beautiful uh, backdrop. It was a beautiful, you know, old uh, East Coast, presumably Ivy League uh, university with, you know, some of the decor that you would find in some of those older universities on the East Coast. It just seemed Uh, like they could just... Why did he have to have the stage? Yeah, it just seemed a bit strange because I was expecting something to happen in the background. But That's where they were keeping that ginormous book. I can't even get both hands in the frame here for you to see that (laughs) ginormous book that he opens up and shows them the picture, (laughs) which in the end turns out to be the scene that you just alluded to. (laughs) Yeah, with the Dementors and the... See, all of the finer details, airtight, brilliant script, brilliant story, brilliant film, best film of 81 from the list uh, that we have to go from. What the thing is, I love that you love it so much, and I don't begrudge you that at all. I am delighted for you that there is something that brings such joy to your life and is bringing joy to your children's lives. I, I feel I like mean, you're no, condescending to me at the moment. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I genuinely mean that because when you have a film that genuinely brings that much joy, like for me, the the first Superman even and the second Superman those two films are films from my childhood that just I love to bits and I don't care how stupid they are and what I, I won't have a bar of it I love them and and they bring me joy even at my advanced age so I do I love it that you love this so much and I love that you you've defended it so much he's and, my alter ego all right I confess well I, I, I don't know how many times but it was several that I was Indiana Jones for Halloween. Well, yeah, I can understand, really. But I'm not sure that, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to have been Marion for Halloween. This, just, I mean, put on, <laughs> put on a white dress and out you go. But I mean, I might But if do, you had gone alongside an Indiana Jones, it might have been a different story. <laughs> I might do it now, ironically, with an Indiana Jones. But, you know, but I just, yeah, I, I think because I didn't see it when I was 10, that's, I just don't feel like I'm, in with the crowd, if you see what I mean. Um, okay. But I do love that you love it. Do you um, think? Do you think that *Chariots of Fire* was a better film? Is a better film? Has withstood the test of time that all Academy Award Best Picture films should and oftentimes don't I think live this, up to. This is the one of the issues when we're having these discussions is that I think that if you want a rip roaring action film, then okay, this is perhaps one that people would choose. I'd choose different ones, but that's not the point. Whether just longevity means it should have won the Oscar in its year, I'm not sure that's the rele- one of the relevant criteria. So I, I'm looking and I, at the And way. I disagree. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I mean, Chariots of Fire at the time did say a lot and, and had things to say, but I, I don't know that it's 
I don't know that it's a better film than Raiders of the Lost. It's a different film. And I'm not sure that either of them would be a choice that I would make. I would be struggling to say that Raiders of the Lost Ark should have won the Oscar. But I'm also not so sure that Chariots of Fire should have either. It was a surprise winner, wasn't it? As I recall, I believe that is true. I think everybody was looking at, were they looking at On Golden Pond? Um, That was the favourite. I don't know. I mean, one film that was nominated, Atlantic City, I have never seen, so I can't really comment on that either. So I think I'm just going to have to... um, Agree to disagree? Yeah, I think so. I just can't... (laughs) Are we finished? Is this the last episode? (laughs) We're not talking to you anymore. This is great fun. This is great fun. Well, yeah. That's okay. I, I will be happy to share with our audience that on this particular case, Marie, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just not going to get those cards and letters and tweets coming in Marie's direction because as you know I don't read any of them I will make sure that you see them all Dan don't worry <laughs> having done all of that I am sorry if I've rained on your parade but I know that your your love is strong enough to overcome any of my criticisms so I'm just much like the film all of this has been irrelevant because you're still where you are in the first place. Yeah, you, you won't you you just won't be able to get me off of this one. And I've gone through a list of the other films that were released in the year. You're not going to find a better film that stands up to my criteria for what makes what should have been the winner. And one day, if so lucky, and we get our Academy voting privileges restored, I'll make sure that uh, Indiana Jones Five gets the true recognition it deserves. Oh my God, Harrison Ford will be in a Zimmer frame trying to find whatever treasure. <laughs> Maybe he'll return the Elgin marbles to, to Greece or something like that and do it that way around. <laughs> so as for um, next time, we are still discussing uh, what we're going to do. And just for we listeners, um, it, just so that... We, the main problem is getting hold it's not that we don't have ideas it's that we are trying to get hold of uh, screen screening links or you know downloads or physical media um and there's films that i can find here and that dan can't access as easily uh, in the states and also and, and and vice versa and in my region we're on a mini lockdown at the moment so um so we're just talking we're around what we are we're, we're just talking about what we're going to do next but we will uh, return in the next couple of weeks with something else. And if you watch my social media, you will find out what that is. Um, you will find me at Reezy Pie on Twitter and on Letterboxd, if anybody is on Letterboxd. You will find this and other episodes um, of the podcast at themovieisle.com. Um, you can follow The Movie Isle for other podcasts, other writings. Um, Dan's not yet on social media, but we're pushing and it might happen. It just might happen sooner rather than later. Okay. I don't want you to take all the criticism without uh, your sidekick here to defend. Yeah, I probably deserve it this time, though. So, you know, um, I'm I'm a big girl. I'll put my white dress on and um, (laughs) I'll be ready for anything. (laughs) Um, Okay, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Dan, for spending the time to talk about your favourite film or one of your favourite films and for being so gracious in your... uh, Responses to me. Maria, I enjoyed myself and your company thoroughly. (laughs) 
and we'll talk to you all later. Take care. Cheers. Original music composed and performed by Martha O'Sullivan.